This is the Darkest Page Podcast. I won't be gone for long. Three months at the most. David and I want to complete our collection and then make one final donation to the museum. You worry too much, Chad. Really, you do. Judith stood in front of a large crate that was carefully packed with boxes. She held an ornate vase in the shape of a man's head, wrapped it in brown paper, and then slid the vase into a thick, rectangular cardboard box before placing the item inside the crate amongst the other boxes. The crate was marked Fragile in blocky black letters and was one of a number of identical crates in the otherwise empty room. Chad continued his dialogue. It's just that the country isn't safe right now, with everything that's been happening there politically. Americans have been murdered or worse. The US Embassy has even issued a travel advisory. It's a risk I wouldn't take, especially during the summer months. That's when the vultures are out, looking for tourists. We are not tourists. Judith paused her work and turned towards her brother. We are archaeologists, but amateur ones, patrons of the arts. Yes, exactly. Armed gunmen won't be impressed. They would want your cash, not your knowledge of the region's indigenous artwork. Judith put her hand on a hip and rolled her eyes, a mannerism typical of hers that she had never outgrown, even in middle age. I only want my big sister to be safe. It's not like David is going to save you if you are in a bind. Judith became animated. Chad, David is a good man. It's just that he's so... Judith's voice trailed off, and she looked away from Chad. We will be with paid guides and an excavation crew, so it won't be just the two of us. We'll be fine. I promise. She finished wrapping the last few artifacts in their boxes, and then stowed them away. Our flight leaves on Sunday, and we'll be back by mid-August, worst case scenario. I'll call you if anything changes. The exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum is in March, so the pieces have to be donated, received by the museum staff, and then made ready for presentation soon. Judith walked with Chad to the front door of her home and opened it for him. Chad stepped out of the foyer and then turned to face Judith. Are you going to stay at that monastery with the nuns you told me about after your last trip? Yes, Reverend Mother Magdalena said that we could stay at the monastery and use it as our base in exchange for a not-so-modest donation, of course. Only me and David, however, not our guides or crew. The monastery is very high up in the mountains, and it's the closest settlement to the dig site. If we didn't use the monastery as our staging area, we would either have to camp with the crew or make the trip back to town every evening if the Reverend Mother hadn't given us permission. I really don't savour the idea of having to sleep in the tent next to some of our guides. Chad grimaced slightly and then put his hand on his sister's shoulder. Be safe. I will want to hear about your adventures when you get back. That was the last time that Chad had seen Judith. Chad had watched his wife put their remaining bags on the curb pavement in front of the double doors of the city airport's main entrance. Chad looked up and down the car lanes that stretched past the airport's arrival and departure area. Look for the car sent by the hotel. The cabs at the airport might not be the real deal. 
I have everything, Sarah said. No lost luggage. Chad pushed his sunglasses further up the bridge of his nose as his skin was slightly damp from perspiration. We shall be at the hotel in a few hours. We can get a good night's sleep and then take care of matters. We'll hire a driver to take us as close to Mother Magdalena's monastery as we can get by vehicle. A local guide will be able to take us the rest of the way. Chad and Sarah sat in the back seat of their air-conditioned SUV as the driver navigated the busy highway downtown. The SUV came to a halt behind a long line of traffic near the exit to the downtown plaza. This is one of the best hotels in the city. The driver spoke English very clearly without a pronounced accent. Close to both the Mario and the Redison, and about a ten minute walk to Cala de la Fuente from the hotel. Sarah lay on the hotel bed but didn't disturb the linen cover. Do you want to go for a walk downtown before we call it tonight? It's much cooler now, and a walk would help us relax after that flight. Chad took off his watch, placing it on a large dresser at the foot of the bed, and sat down in front of Sarah. I really can't relax until we know more. I'm sorry to be so tense, but there's still a chance we could find out something about Judith. Both of them have been missing for months. I'm sorry, Chad, but I don't think we're going to find them here. There were no bodies. No one knows what happened. All anyone has to go on is what that little girl might have seen. She isn't talking. Judith was so excited that final time I spoke to her over the phone. She and David were going to bring the girl back with them and legally adopt her. They had never had any kids of their own, and Judith saw this as a chance to be a mother. Sarah rested her head in the palm of her arched arm and continued. Why was Judith so interested in this country? I can understand the art collection, but what is it about this place that's so compelling? She and David spent so much time here amassing these artifacts for the museum. But what else was in it for them? Chad was very tall with sandy blonde hair and an athletic build. He stood out very sharply in contrast to the local people, as did Sarah. Chad and Sarah had even been mistaken for fraternal twins on a number of occasions. Chad lay across from Sarah and then rolled over on his back with his face toward the ceiling. Judith never felt comfortable at home. She really needed to get out and explore, see the world. Judith studied art history in college and became fascinated with what the native people had created in this region. She learned the language and kept returning. The excavation site they were working on was sponsored by the museum, but our family had put up the funding for most of the project. Chad stood up from the bed and walked to the balcony window, taking in the view of the city at night. The girl is there waiting for us. Reverend Mother Magdalena said that she would like us to at least meet her. The girl has no family and nothing is really known about her, but she was the last person who saw Judith and David alive. Reverend Mother Magdalena strode down the long collimated pathway connecting the brightly painted stucco buildings of the monastery. The Reverend Mother reached the front gates of the courtyard where Chad and Sarah were waiting to meet her. I'm glad you are here. I am so sorry about Judith and her husband. The police investigated for several months but were unable to make very much progress. Chad tried to appear comfortable and said, Yesterday we met with the detective assigned to the case. He explained how the investigation went and apologised for not being able to find anything at all. 
no evidence of what had happened. He assured me that such a case is highly irregular and that the police had made their best effort. Chad had only seen the Reverend Mother before in a few photographs brought back by Judith after her penultimate trip. Mother Magdalena was not much older than Judith and had sharp, angular facial features set against the neatly pressed, flowing white coif of her nun's habit. It's all right if you don't. I studied in the United States for a number of years, but I don't have to use English all that often. I am rusty, as you would say. Chad smiled apologetically. No, neither of us have a foreign language, I'm sorry to tell you. Judith was the cosmopolitan one of the two siblings. All right, then. I think you should meet Stella. She's in her room near the back of the monastery. The expansive courtyard of the monastery was lined with olive trees along its stone and adobe walls that shielded its buildings from the outside. The nuns lived in isolation from the nearby communities further down the mountain range, with the exception of the monastery's groundkeepers and handymen who maintained the buildings. These men were members of the local indigenous populations, but could converse with the sisters in Spanish. Mother Magdalena brought Chad and Sarah down a long hall after re-entering the monastery that ended with a simple wooden door to their left, featuring a tarnished bronze knob. This was a storage room before we set up Stella in here. Mother Magdalena made one quick knock, and then opened the door to a plain whitewashed room that had only a cot and a clothes dresser as furniture. A young girl of about ten years old was sitting on the bed, looking out of a solitary window at the monastery grounds. She wore a basic white cotton tunic and was barefoot. Stella, familia de Judith esta aquí? The girl turned to face the visitors, but did not move from her spot. She had large, almond-shaped black eyes with an elongated face and dark brown skin. Stella speaks no English at all, but also no Spanish. She has learned a little Spanish since staying at the monastery, but doesn't speak it. Stella does know bits of the local language, but her pronunciation is very odd, almost archaic. Chad walked towards the cot and crouched down next to the motionless girl. Stella, I'm Chad. I'm Judith's brother. Stella looked at him silently and then turned away, back towards observing the outside window. After David and Judith found Stella, she didn't speak, no matter what we tried. We thought that she might be mute. Then one of the groundskeepers spoke to her in this indigenous dialect, and she answered him. She's perfectly healthy, though. We had a doctor examine her, and he could find no evidence of physical trauma. I think she will start speaking again in time, and then tell us her story. But let us leave Stella for now. I will introduce you to Sister Claudia. Mother Magdalena and Chad filed out of the small room and Sarah followed, turning around once to glance at Stella. Stella turned her head away from the window again and gave Sarah an expressionless stare as the door closed behind them. Sister Claudia walked up the steep path in front of Chad and Sarah that led along the periphery of the jungle canopy. The sister wore clothes suitable to making the climb in the mountains nearby the monastery, but still retained a nun's short coif that hid most of her glossy black hair. When they had hiked to what seemed to be the top, 
she pointed to a suspension bridge in the distance that had become clearly defined. The Reverend Mother asked me to show you the excavation site as, other than herself, I can speak your language. I read theology at Oxford for two years, so maybe not quite your language. I am also young enough to make the climb without too much trouble. The sister smiled at both of them when she stopped near the suspension bridge for a rest. Chad paused and then looked over at Sarah to make sure she was going to be able to reach the bridge. The workers refurbished the bridge before the excavation started last spring. They reinforced the planks and made sure that everything was secure, as it was going to get a lot of use. Once we get to the other side, the site is a quick climb down. Maybe 30 minutes? Oh, is that all? Sarah stopped and breathed slowly, bending forward with her hands on her knees. I need to take a drink from my water bottle. I'll catch you up if you want to keep going. The atmosphere was very thin, and Sarah's laboured efforts punctuated the new environment the couple was experiencing. Chad looked out over the vista and could see no visible structures. The monastery was obscured by the canopy that they had now passed since reaching the mountain's skyline. Chad said, Come on, honey, you can make it. It's not much further. Sister Claudia led them into a shallow, circular quarry that terminated at the side of the mountain. There were still canvas tents and crates scattered around the site, as all supplies had not been collected in anticipation of the possibility that work might resume in the near future. The workers and your sister had already procured some substantial finds, but only the surface has been scratched so far. What relics they have excavated and dusted are being kept in storage at the monastery. Your sister and the guide seemed to think that this place was once a temple to an indigenous deity, an animal god of some sort. Sister Claudia shaded her eyes with a hand and motioned around them with her free one in a sweeping gesture. There are dozens of stone statues that have become almost completely submerged in the landscape and ring the mountains for miles in an elliptical pattern. The buried temple is at the exact centre of the ellipse. That is how the team found this place and then decided where to start excavating. There are no mentions of this religious site in any oral tradition among the natives, or anything else that might point to its existence. The temple could even predate human settlement in this area. The opening in the side of the mountain's surface had been delved by the excavation crew using a mole drilling machine, but only the outer plaza of the structure was visible from the quarry. The tunnelled opening revealed a stone-tiled floor partially covered in debris, but nothing else was perceptible from the outside. The temple had been built into the contours of the mountain itself, and then sealed by an avalanche, possibly on purpose. Chad and Sarah turned and looked at each other, and then Sarah sat down on a nearby crate covered in a canvas sheet. Chad started to wander off by himself around the quarry, kicking loose stones with his foot. Sarah said, why did the authorities agree to allow Judith and the museum to work on this dig? These kinds of sites could produce national treasures worth millions. Our government doesn't have the money for this kind of project, but Chad's sister and the museum did. All the artifacts which have been excavated from the site will be returned to our country after being exhibited at the museum for an agreed upon amount of time. Sister Claudia walked closer to the temple's roped threshold and peered into the tenebrous opening the interior of which was barely discernible now due to the rain clouds forming overhead. 
The great temple beyond the surrounding court perimeter has yet to be breached from my understanding. I can't even tell you what is past there. On the far side of the dig site is a plateau that overlooks the rainforest. That is where two of the workers first found Stella. Let me show you. Chad stood at the edge of the flat rock cliff and saw below that the deep valley's leafy cover spread until the next mountain range in the inaccessible distance. Sister Claudia was nearby on a lower ledge that connected to the mountain via a narrow trail that extended all the way down into the heart of the rainforest. The men had been working at the site and were caught in a torrential rain that suddenly appeared during the afternoon. The rain went on for hours but dissipated before the evening. Then someone noticed a tiny figure sitting on this ledge in the twilight. Sister Claudia knelt down to touch the reddish stone surface of the cliff. Stella was alone and naked, sitting with her arms around her knees. The rock was slick from the downpour, but she would not move. One of the crew members ran to the monastery to fetch Judith, hoping Stella wouldn't be afraid of a woman. Judith was able to get Stella to leave her perch, and she has been at the monastery since that night. The sisters named her Stella, as she couldn't give us her birth name. Stella means star in classic Latin, as she was found under a very clear, starry sky after the rain. Judith didn't want to change it. Chad had joined Sister Claudia on the lower cliff and stood next to her. Do you know any more about the night that Judith and David disappeared? The detective told us they had left the monastery grounds without letting anyone know, and then never came back. Stella was found wandering outside in the jungle nearby, so the police supposed that she had most likely been with Judith and David when they vanished, or at least initially. Sister Claudia looked right at Chad and drew closer to him. She said, what else did the detective tell you about Stella? Nothing. He said that she was their only probable witness. But she either can't, or won't say what she might have seen. Her voice lowered, and the nun's tone changed to one of trepidation. I was the one who found Stella outside during the search. Her cotton tunic was badly torn and soiled, but there was not a mark on her. It was almost as if she had been dragged across the jungle floor without so much as a scratch. All of it is here, in the four biggest crates with English language script on the outside. Mother Magdalena raised one of the tarp covers to show Chad and Sarah the name of the museum where the artefacts would be added to the collection that had already been donated by Judith. Customs knows that these items are coming, so they will be shipped out by sea around the same time that your flight leaves. The museum staff is ready to receive them. Thank you. I appreciate what you did for Judith and David while they were here. I'll let you know if the case is ever reopened in light of new information. You're welcome, Mr Isaac. Judith truly loved this country, almost as much as she loved Stella. So what will happen to Stella? Sarah stood next to Mother Magdalena and crossed her arms. Will she be raised as a nun in training? Mother Magdalena laughed and said, Oh no, we can't rear children here. The monastery is a place for religious contemplation, not a nursery. Sarah continued saying, Where will Stella go then? She has already been with the sisters for months. Mother Magdalena became serious and gestured to the folding chairs situated near the crates. Please, sit down. Chad and Sarah seated themselves, and Mother Magdalena sat across from them. 
she took one of Sarah's hands in both of hers. I would like you and Chad to adopt Stella, as Judith and David had planned. Chad was taken aback and sat up abruptly. We can't, Mother Magdalena. Even if we could, there is all the government red tape and the visa to consider. I have to return to my law practice by next week. Everything is ready. I've already made all the arrangements with child services and immigration. You will just have to complete the process once you return to the States. If you don't adopt Stella, she will end up in a government-run orphanage. We can't keep her. Sarah touched Chad's shoulder. Let's please talk this over. Judith would have wanted this. Chad thought back to their initial meeting with Stella and how cold she had seemed when they had entered her bedroom and tried to greet her. Stella sat in the back seat of their convertible sports car with her fine, chin-length black hair blowing around her face. Sarah occupied the passenger seat next to Chad as he drove them from the international airport, paging through her travel guide with pictures of indigenous artwork. Objects from the same period illustrated in Sarah's guidebook had followed them on their trip home and would soon be on display to the public. Chad looked into the rearview mirror and was able to see Stella briefly before returning to focus on the road home. Stella had noticeably warmed to the couple following their departure from the remote monastery, and she turned her head to look at them in the front seat, smiling faintly. Chad remarked to himself how similar the girl appeared to the ancient people depicted on the mountain's temple mosaic art. The local inhabitants were the direct descendants of the civilization that had existed in the region for thousands of years before European settlement. Chad drove past palm trees on the highway and then up long stretches of hillside road until reaching the sparsely populated woodland exurbs outside the metropolitan city. Chad made an hour-long commute to his office and then back again every workday, just for the opportunity to live in relative isolation and privacy. The red sun dipped over the horizon as the car sped past the homes dotting the scenery, and the evening air became chill as spring had not yet turned into summer in the desert. What's that in the driveway, darling? Sarah had put her book down into her lap as they approached their home and leaned over the side door of the car from her seat. It looks like a tarantula, Chad replied, one of the orange-striped kinds. They come into the yard sometimes from the thick cluster of trees behind the house. Too bad we don't have any neighbours to attract them elsewhere. Sarah continued to watch the lurking spider from the car's passenger seat. Be careful when we step out of the car. Keep an eye on that thing so it doesn't get too close. Chad smiled without looking at Sarah. We won't have to worry about it in a minute. Sarah looked over at Chad and said, Why? That bug is almost the size of a small kitten. Sarah again leaned out over the side door as Chad pulled their car into the semicircle driveway in front of their two-story stucco residence. Chad drove over the spider from which a detectable crunch was heard as the tyre rolled over it. Stella sat up in the back seat immediately and was very still. Her eyes were wide and she had a disconcerted expression on her face. Chad continued to drive the car around the semicircle, and then opened the automatic garage door, parking their car inside. Stella remained stationary in the back seat until Chad opened the side door of the convertible and looked down at her. Stella then turned to look up at Chad and gave him a piercing glare that made him take one step back. Chad walked away from the car and out of the open garage door. He said, Sarah, can you take Stella inside? I'm going to clean off the driveway with a hose before we unpack. 
Sarah switched ears and continued to speak into the cordless phone. No, Stella's been sleeping very well for weeks, but she hardly ever speaks, even now. She knows some English words for food and a few other things, but we can't get her to really talk to us. I want to bring Stella to a speech therapist after we get settled in and the museum runs our exhibition. Okay, please call me next week before we stop into social services. I know there is more paperwork we have to go over before the formal adoption procedure begins in earnest. Sarah hung up the phone and then looked at Chad, who was standing facing her. You don't have to come with me the first few times, but we are going to need your signature on everything, probably next month. Chad walked behind Sarah and then wrapped his arms around her shoulders, pressing his face against the side of her head. Of course, I want to be as involved with the adoption as much as necessary, but I can't miss any more work. I have to go to trial next week, so that means more long hours with the litigation team and the requisite face time at the office. I couldn't even drop everything when Judith first went missing, as I was elbow deep at the firm. The consulate assured me that she would turn up soon, but... Sarah turned around on the kitchen stool and hugged Chad underneath his arms, placing her head on his chest. Stella is all we have left of Judith. I really want us to be good parents to our girl. We will be a family. Chad tapped away at the keyboard, drafting a long email response to the firm partner that he had been assigned to work with his team. He had eaten dinner at the office and was preparing to leave for home before it became a late night drive. The desk phone rang even though it was after business hours, and Chad picked up the call. Oh, Mr Isaac, I am sorry. I was expecting to go to your voicemail. This is Jared Scott, the curator of Judith's collection at the Metropolitan Museum. Your sister and I were close friends, but you and I have never met in person. The museum curator spoke with precise diction, befitting that of a scholar of antiquity. Chad replied, Good to make your acquaintance, Mr Scott. I appreciate the efforts you have made on behalf of Judith's donated pieces. Sarah and I are looking forward to the opening day of the exhibit. What is the tentative date as of now? We have rescheduled the exhibit for a few months from now, during the first week of August. I was calling to inform you that all the items in your shipment have been catalogued and are now being prepared for display. The pieces are of a greater rarity than even we had anticipated, with some highly unusual pictographs on the temple pottery and mosaics recovered at the site. Chad leaned back in his black leather office chair and asked, How so? Sarah and I never saw what was boxed up in those four crates that were shipped back. The excavation crew had already prepared the shipment after work on the site had ceased. Mr. Isaac, the usual sacred animal spirits such as the puma, the snake, and the condor are entirely missing from the site's pictographic imagery. Instead, there are spiders on everything. We have never seen anything like this before. A temple to spiders? I don't know much about the country's old religions, but that sounds like a cult I wouldn't want to be part of. Who would build a temple to some spider god? The construction at the site was also not entirely a temple. From the narrative told on the mosaics we have examined, the site was not only a place of worship, Mr. Isaac. The temple at Pukihirka is a burial chamber for the victims of human sacrifice. Chad drove home as a steady rain washed across his windshield, which was cleared away by the dull squeak of the windshield wipers swiping in unison. The car's headlights illuminated the early evening, 
as Chad turned off the highway and drove down the two-lane road towards their hillside home. Chad parked outside in the semicircle driveway and saw that the house was completely dark. The evening was humid after the rain had turned into a drizzle, announcing the first days of the summer months. He opened the front door and immediately noticed that the air conditioning had been shut off. I hope this isn't a prank, Chad called out into the kitchen from the hallway, because it's not funny. He attempted to flip the light switch at the end of the hall, but the power was out. Chad fumbled around in the dark kitchen and found a flashlight in the first drawer next to the stove. He looked in his and Sarah's bedroom, and then in Stella's bedroom, but both were empty. He walked outside and into their backyard, noticing one of Stella's leather sandals lying in the grass near the path leading to the wooded area behind the house. Chad picked up the sandal before continuing into the nighttime forest. The trees were very tall with hanging branches reaching out towards each other, forming a shelter from the rain and also from sunlight during the day. He continued along the path until he found Stella's other sandal and some of her clothes that had been stained with what seemed to be a pungent smelling discharge. Chad worried that his wife and adopted daughter might have been murdered by intruders. He called around him into the forest. Stella? S Sarah? Stella? I'm going back for the police unless you come out now. Chad heard a rustling sound close by and shone his flashlight onto the spot from which the noise emanated. He saw a man-sized cocoon suspended from the trees in the forest clearing, with the bottom of the webbed figure inches above the ground. Chad aimed his flashlight at the figure's head that pointed towards the wood's floor and saw that it was Sarah. Sarah's face was wrapped in a thin webbing, but her eyes, nose, and mouth were partially exposed. Oh my god! Sarah! Chad whispered. Chad crawled next to her, and Sarah began wheezing in an attempt to speak. He put his ear next to Sarah's mouth, and she let out a barely audible, Kill me. Tears ran down his face as he attempted to pull at the sticky webs and free his wife. From above in the tree's canopy, a giant brown spider, the size of a horse, lowered itself onto the disturbed soil behind Sarah's cocoon prison. As Chad pivoted to run away, the last thing he felt was the monstrous body slam into his back. This has been Stella by James Dermond, From Doorways to the Unseen, Six Tales of Terror and Suspense, available now at Amazon.com. This episode was made with the support of the librarians of The Darkest Page, Alex Smith and Tonks, and with a special thanks for the permission from James Dermond. To see how you can support the podcast, please visit patreon.com forward slash the darkest page. I have been your host, and I wish you pleasant 
dreams.